technology changes, but it was actually, it was the diplomatic bag part that removed any, giving them any benefit of the doubt. Hi, this is Greg Young. And this is Bill Malik. And you're listening to Real Cybersecurity. So how's the weather up there today, Greg? Uh, pleasant, uh, not as hot as some places. So happy not to be in Texas or the UK or a lot of places. So, Yeah, down here it's uh, strange. It's very warm. I mean, for, for Connecticut, high right. 80s. But it's uh, very overcast. And to look outside, you'd assume that it would be in the 40s and verging on drizzle. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a rough day. I am actually... I'm going to be out in it in a little bit. I'm driving up to Boston for the AWS reInvent event. Oh, nice. Yeah, this afternoon I'll be there tomorrow and Wednesday and then coming home. So, yeah, it'll be nice to get out among the crowds, masked, but still <laughs> nice to be out among the crowds. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to know which event to go to. They reInvent or reinforce. So, you know, reInvent's the big general AWS conference. Reinforce was, has been the security one. So mm. it's always been difficult because you know, security is not just its own thing. It's embedded quality in a lot of the, the products that AWS does. So, yeah, it's hard to know which one to get yeah. to. I was interested in this one simply because they have a track on identity and access management. And okay. I really wanted to see uh, what they have to say about about that. Have you noticed a significant spike in the number of pieces of advice telling people to use multi-factor authentication? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's kind of overwhelming now. It's kind of the thing like the brush your teeth and don't pick your nose and drive me down a bumpy road, generic advice. So it's, uh, yeah, it's good. Begs the conversation about the devils in the details, but yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's great. I, I think it's wonderful and I'm very happy to see it. I've been using multi-factor authentication everywhere that I can since it started being deployed. Uh, but then, you know, <laughs> having started in this industry as a programmer long ago, uh, I'm the kind of fellow who looks both ways before crossing a one-way street. <laughs> you know, so, right. Yeah, I know, what, I know what the normal case is, but I also want to take a look at the edge conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, You know, I think there's some more polish that needs to be done on it, uh, and also for scenarios for, you know, if the phone is unavailable. Hmm. So I have some accounts that, for some non-work things I can't get into <laughs> anymore. You know, a phone mm. number changed and my email changed and I have uh, no ability to go back and they say, well, you know, call us in the whole bit, but it's nothing important enough. I'm willing to invest hours of my time into getting back into it. So, yeah, but it makes it vulnerable because it's an account out there that has some hanging credentials and, you know, yeah. And someone someday eventually is going to try to spend time, trying to hack into it. Exactly right. Yeah. One of one of the things I did very early when I started developing my online presence was I got user IDs on every email or social media system that was around just so that I could have territorial claim to that particular user ID. And it's all staking, over the place. Your, staking your claim like a prospector. That's fine. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I still use some of them. I mean, it's been a while since I've been on AT&T.net, and I haven't tried Prodigy.net for an awfully long time. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah there was an uh, incident recently where the area I'm in, there was a large ISP outage, and they also, of course, they have a large share of the mobile market. Hmm. So a lot of people just couldn't couldn't MFA. They were they, they dropped the A and just yeah. said MF a lot. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, multi-factor. Multi I meant not the other. Well, of course, of course. Yeah. But a lot of it had no plan B, so a lot of people just put their hands up and said, "Oh, I can't go into work. I can't log into work because there's no plan B." Yeah. So, cell phone, yep. uh, cell phones down, and the internet's down for that particular carrier. So, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a big, big hassle. Oh, speaking of internet, I finally made the leap, and I am no longer a cable funder at all. I I'm saw using, that. Yeah, I'm using an ISP. 1.9 gigabit symmetric internet. Wow. I mean, wow. What <laughs> That's times like, we live in? What times yeah. we live in, eh? Wow. 30 times faster than the IBM OEM channel. Ah. <laughs> Mainframe channel speed. <laughs> so. Parallel, parallel cisplex or just channel? Uh, just channel. Pure, that was, yeah, it's pure channel speed, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was 16 megabytes per second. So you multiply right. that by eight, right? You're still couple order an order magnitude or and a half better than that. So it's really quite thrilling. I mean, I feel like I'm in the big leads. I remember when one of my colleagues had an ongoing problem with his uh phone carrier. This was back in the days when people had landlines into their homes all over the place. And eventually in frustration they just gave him a T one connection. Which which oh, the good time, times Yeah. Oh that's that's you know blazingly fast. Well that was like in the days when 16 meg was was virtually infinite <laughs> storage yeah. in the mainframe. Those T1s were so expensive too. It was remarkable. So, yeah, yeah. Well, the same thing with uh, with memory chips. Um, I can remember when I got my uh, 8386 based IBM PC because I wanted the extra horsepower for graphics back in the 1980s. I bought memory, and then you know, damn damn chip cost like 2k. I was grousing about that. And then I realized it's the same chip that IBM sold in the mainframe in those days for about a hundred times more. Right, right. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. I guess I'm, I guess I'm happy. Yeah. The math, uh, you know, people talk about various, you know, various curves or, or, or laws of either processor growth or, you know, networking speed growth, but it's just, it is remarkable uh, mm. what's being achieved. Uh, I, I was living in one place where the upload and download speeds were symmetrical, and I, that was uh, interesting to see the difference there. Mm. The up and up and down were both were both high. Kudos to that carrier for doing that. But yeah, that's uh, that that brings up some interesting stuff. And the outage also brought up the issue of I have my my mobile carrier with a different brand than who is my ISP, so that worked out to look like a smart thing. As many people were cut off, you lose a bit of savings, but turned out to be a Decision of resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I use a separate carrier for a, a phone that I do for my uh, ISP now, and it's much, oh, uh, yeah, much more resilient. So if the if the internet goes down on that, I can set up a hotspot on my phone. I've got good enough cellular connectivity. I can do that. Speaking of uh, carriers, you brought up an interesting news item before about yes, the mud yeah, being flung. Yeah, apparently somebody took a look out their window while commuting into D.C. and noticed that there were some new cell towers. And it turns out that the gear hanging on those towers is Huawei stuff. And the concern was that it's there for the purpose of intercepting transmissions. And then somebody pulled out a map and took a look and said, oh, this this tower is on the highest point in this general area. And it's well designed to pick up any stuff that even designed to be point to point because it'll be you know, in the background or in intermediary between some sensitive locations. So the concern is, you know, are these uh, 
are these folks serving as agents for a foreign government to uh, intercept stuff? And it was, you know, the more things change, right? In the 1960s, the then Soviet Union put towers on top of some buildings along the uh, New Jersey side of the Hudson River that were designed to intercept uh, microwave traffic coming into and out of New York City and heading heading west. So, uh, and that microwave at that time was fairly directional. You know, if you put yourself in the right place, I mean, you wouldn't block it, of course, but you could certainly scoop up a lot of data. The question is that when the volume of data is that high, what kind of filters would you need to put in order to extract stuff worthy of analysis? Reminds me of the omnivore and carnivore programs that uh, NSA was running for a while to uh, pick keywords out of the uh, telephony that was uh, presumably either international or one, or one of the parties was known to be a foreign national and therefore technically uh, able to be uh, spied upon. But still, yeah, there are lots and lots of folks who want to uh, pick up and listen to our stuff. And if you do, please subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been a history of uh, embassy placement at critical junctures and uh, mm. locations like that. Uh, it's, I think there was a Soviet one. I think I recall there was a Japanese one in World War II as well, but it's the Soviet mm. one. I think uh, the requested location for that one was so noteworthy. So but in this case, there was some uh, reports uh, on some of the major news about not only the location of a potential place they were funding, but um, also some deals being made below cost to put equipment in to mm -hmm. make this carrier suspect. And the the ultimate twist on that was that some of the equipment was being imported in diplomatic bags. Yes, that that, that was the red flag for me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's no no yeah. pun intended, yeah. Well <laughs> although, you know, in that case, very, very well deserved. And the the subtext on all this is that uh, the federal government has authorized a substantial amount of money for bringing broadband to the rest of the nation, the folks that are right. not in hubs that are served by multiple carriers competing for business dollars. And of course, not every conversation of note is between two people in the same city. So you know, if you can put something on the relative outskirts, then you basically have a way in. So that was the that was the big concern was that there was gear going on there. I was doing a little bit of background on that and I recall there was a brand new piece of electrical generation equipment that was imported and it was seized by customs and diverted to was it Idaho National Labs because there was some electronics in it that was not spec. And of course, the manufacturer said, no, 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 it's just regular old stuff. You know, everything that the customs form asked for, we filled out. But yeah, the equipment was seized, garnished, never returned, and no public report was ever made on it. So it's, uh, yeah, uh, people are still trying to get into each other's uh, private conversations. And to circle back here, that's why you want to use multi-factor authentication. It just makes it harder. Any well-funded agency that wants to figure out what two people are saying will find a way to do it. The easiest way is to bribe or blackmail one of the two people. Failing that, then you have all sorts of stuff that you can do. And it's just a cost trade-off. Do you want to try to crack the hard encryption, or do you want to do something at the endpoint where the message is decrypted, or do you want to take advantage of backups? 
lots and lots of ways to skin that cat. And most nations do this uh, as a matter of course, when they're looking at somebody they see as a national uh, potential adversary. Yeah, I'm highly, I'm highly sensitive to false claims of it. Uh, you know, the whole red end of the bed, again, no, no pun intended for the red color of the flag. But mm. it's, um, yeah, because, you know, sometimes the local vendors will claim foul and, you know, everything is suspect. And I'm also sensitive to the fact that within a carrier's cloud or within their internal networks, it's highly visible what's going on. On the other hand, uh, you know, technology changes, but it was actually, it was the diplomatic bag part that, that, that removed any sort of element or, you know, giving the, you know, giving them any sort of benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Uh, That, that was, um, that's what, that's what kind of did it for me. Again, at this vendor, you know, I've met some of the people, great people there. Uh, many Americans work there. But again, you know, what's the influence of it? And glass houses don't throw stones. Of course, it goes the other way as well. But uh, I think it's the job of counterintelligence to find and stop these things. Yep. There was a great piece of history about, and it's in open source, so we can talk about it, was the typewriters that were bugged back at the U.S. Embassy uh, in Moscow. Yep. Are you familiar with that story? I remember one involving the IBM Selectric, where it was a one-use carbon-backed piece of film that you could then read if you just unraveled it. But I think you're talking about something different. Yeah, there was a solid aluminum bar, and this is from I'll list my source, so I don't have anybody coming after me to throw me in jail. It's a IEEE Spectrum. It's a crazy story of how Soviet Russia bugged an American embassy's typewriters, and it had a solid aluminum bar in it, and it had a hollow cavity. And the cavity, there was a circuit board and some magnetometers. And the magnetometers could sense the movement of the tiny magnets, which had embedded in it. And so the golf ball that the IBM typewriters had, it was actually electric. You're right. Yep. Um, you could tell what the movement was. And this all came to an account because there was an antenna that a guy at the NSA was, was suspicious about. And also there were, their sources were getting arrested then. So long story short, they were quite intrigued by this. It turns out that the, the spy agencies, friendly spy agencies kind of said, Hey, give up on this. Like this is this antenna business. Forget about it. We, you're beating a dead horse. There's nothing there. They're not, then there's, we, we've swept, we've swept and swept and there's no transmissions being found. But, you know, it was found. So uh, this is how, you know, they were basically had access to everything going through the typewriters that were being monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It took some time for some time to be found out what it was. So, uh, it, of course, in the spy versus spy game, there was uh, this one fellow writing about it, said what a great kinship he felt when he came across it. <laughs> you know, what, a great, what a great thing that was. Well done. You know, well played. <laughs> right. Right. That's, that's, when, that's when spycraft gets somewhat surreal. That's where you have, you know, adversaries commiserating about the fact that they're 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 not able to pull off the great stunts that they used to you know yeah Um, they didn't repurpose some of the springs and screws to deliver power to the circuits and they would only transmit it in bursts and then across hopping multiple frequencies so it was really intended so hard to find but i think with a bit more diligence that would have been found much like the the american seal which was also bugged in the other embassy i remember that story very well anyway there's a history of Trojan horses and and the like, and um, it's a it's a challenging thing because it is an open market. But at what point, um, you know, does the government interfere in these things? So, well, when when there's a clear and present threat, yes, then I think the government's unimpeded on being to being able to go in and recommend and rip out stuff. In this case, there's an economic incentive to upgrade, but there's no mandate, so it's not yet yeah. imminent domain. But it is um, 
you know, definitely a uh, a risk. Yeah, and kudos to the to the federal. I think it's the federal government who said they would uh, give a, a a large portion of the funding for the upgrade. Uh, you know, away from this gear that it was suspect. Yeah. So that that's that's what has to happen. So that, that kind of recompense. So, but yeah. the the back and forth continues. So I don't like it when somebody's pointed at unfairly. Uh, I think that's you know some people get caught in the roadkill on that. However, you know when there is some some tomfoolery going on, it. Uh, Definitely has to be called out. We can't be naive about what uh, governments will go to the lengths they'll go to, especially in this threat and threat sort of environment we're in right now. So, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me there was an episode of the West Wing. And what I'm recalling is the moment where a woman is attempting to, uh, she's filed FOIA requests to be able to exonerate her father or grandfather who'd been accused of being a spy, you know, lived in shame and passed on. And then, there, there were never, there was never clear evidence that anything had happened. And so she ends up interacting with uh, one of the people in the White House staff who takes up her cause and begins making some calls. And then finally he gets a face to face with an intelligence officer who opens uh, the file and says, I'm not allowed to show you this, you know, but here's the evidence we have showing that this fellow was in fact an active spy for the Soviets. Right. And so our hero, I think the uh, actor was Rob Lowe now is in a quandary because he's been championing this. Yep, yep. So he, he goes back to the woman and he does something that's that to me is very kind. He tells her, I wasn't able to get as far as I wanted to, but do come back and we'll try again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as opposed to saying, no, your dad was a spy. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, this is, uh, again, highlights the difference between intelligence and counterintelligence and just how they are completely different disciplines. And sadly, Counterange is always the poor redheaded stepchild. If that expression is mm-hmm. still being used, um, you know, the rented donkey that gets beaten. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unfairly. So there's such, of course, intelligence is so enamoring to executives. Yeah. Whereas counterintelligence is always, um, of course, if, uh, if you do your job, great. You never find anything. Well, right. And, and what you do find, you can never talk about. Right. Or even if you bring it up, it's always, uh, it's never, it's never great. Good job. You found somebody selling us out to the baddies. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. It's also been very changeable. So, it used to be uh, one public example was uh, the food author Julia Child. Her husband, it said, was released from the State Department because of fears over his perceived sexual orientation. Oh, uh, that was yeah, that was the forties and fifties and such. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it extended out when when I was working in you know counterint and the security clearance processes then were the same. It was any sort of you know, whiff of that during those strange times was enough to, you know, ruin careers and the like. And I'm glad reason has prevailed and, you know, it's exploitability matters more than that, that sort of business, you know, to disclose it, you're not subject to, you know, being leveraged anymore. So, right. Yeah, I know it's, um, there was actually one of the, the person who changed those rules in Canada was actually on my course with me. Oh, nice. Very yeah. Good. Michelle Douglas was her name. And so she joined the, the counter int world, uh, in the military police and, there was a the element of that time who would look for people of sexual persuasion was called the SIU, hmm. and they posted her off into the SIU, not understanding her orientation. And uh, she tells the story better than I will. She's told it very publicly, obviously. But yeah, she got the the laws changed. She was released because she won't, you know, allegedly warned a, a friend that she was being sought out <laughs> and uh, targeted. Yeah, when they found out. Uh, more about her than they, you know, they released her and she fought that and saying, you know, this was uh, orientation should not be the basis for holding a clearance. And um, so she actually changed the 
the rules in the Canadian military early on for that. So, yeah, there's only like 12 of us on the course by the end of it. So I knew her quite well. Good, smart person in the whole bit. So, yeah, that was my run in with sort of the failures of counterint. So that was very disappointing how that was handled, but it's uh, it's been made better. So three cheers for that. Well, yeah, that's good. You like to see progress. Yeah, yeah. The, our security as a, as a rule should have ethics. I think that's often a, a, a part of uh, cybersecurity we ignore. Like forget the security clearance aspect. We increasingly have to be more concerned about the ethics of what we do, especially since we gather so much information Yeah, and it can be used for uh, harming people when it shouldn't be. Well, that's that's exactly right. Um, you can cause a tremendous amount of reputational damage by letting slip some personal information. Doesn't really do you know, the intelligence agency any real help. I mean, it's not a find. Obviously, somebody who's been you know outed as you know being left-handed, you know, they're right, right, right. Yeah. Or back to my red-headed stepchild, <laughs> bad, yeah. bad uh, dated term of you know, this person has red hair. They, yeah. you know, we must we must find them out. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's like, you know, that, that really, given that governments do have limited resources. And for those who uh, dispute that, I will just simply note that most federal agencies believe they're underfunded by about half. And that was some survey work that I saw take, that took place in the late 1990s. And I have seen no indication that it's, uh, that it's increased. Now, I don't know about what the numbers would be look like for the Department of Defense, but I know that when you take a look at things like veterans healthcare and such, there's clearly significant upside. We spend about a quarter of what the average top 30 economies spend nationally on retraining people who are displaced because of technological change. Right, right. The copper mine closes. And so what do you, what do you do with these people? Well, you put them on uh, welfare or you can train them to become something else. And we certainly could use not just highfalutin cybersecurity superstars, but people who can do equipment testing, people right. who can manage auditing the security of our power infrastructure. That's not a yeah. that's not a hard step. That's an entirely doable thing. And Lord knows we need that kind of support. So yeah, I mean that's that gets into the whole you know, staffing and where will the next generation come from? On a bright note, I had uh, dinner recently with a professor at Quinnipiac uh, University. Uh, they're the ones that are behind some of the more interesting political polls. Uh, they're right. located right. Uh, just north of uh, New Haven, not uh, not more than an hour from where I am. And they've got a wonderful information security program, bachelor's program, uh, which includes a track on industrial internet of things includes a class on identity and access management. I mean, when he showed me what was in there, I was like, Oh my Lord. I mean, you're, you're not just teaching software engineering or computer science. You're actually yeah. getting into the nuts and bolts of some fairly important security. stuff. anyway, the, the upshot of that is I'm going to be doing a uh, guest lecture spot talking about um, zero trust architecture. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Just help that out. Hopefully, you know, I can I can do that more. They are on track to becoming, that is their intention to become one of the centers of excellence for cybersecurity education. Uh, NSA goes through a very extensive vetting process. Years ago, I worked with Norwalk Community College, a two-year grant and associate's degree program. Again, not far from where I am. Norwalk is just a... <laughs> I can't, I can't ever get my, my head around because of the virus name, though. Know? Come for the education, stay for the virus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yep. No, it, it's, it's amazing what's going on in the New England area and what well, back to the Northeast. I used to love the Bay Area back in the day. 
Mm. I have come to loathe the Bay Area ethics and <laughs> business there. That's why I don't live there. The companies that came out of and the ethos in the Northeast have been remarkable. So I'll call it out companies like Sourcefire, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, it was such a different experience going to visit companies up in that area versus the Bay Area. Yeah. Very, very different cultures, very different principles. And especially, you know, this, this real sort of interest in the pure cybersecurity research that came out of the Northeast area. And yes, some of it sort of targeted with the, the feds, but ignore that, that circle. Mm. Great. Some great, fantastic companies have come out of there. And I, I can't think of one visit I ever had there where I came away negative from any of the secure cybersecurity companies that I visited there. So, well, it's been going at this forever. I mean, RSA right there. Uh, right. Uh, great, great example. Yeah. It's a nice, and there's, you know, a bazillion educational institutions. Yep. And it's such a nice place to live. It's walkable in the same way that San Francisco is without all those darn hills. <laughs> it is expensive, but nowhere near as expensive as, say, Palo Alto. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got such a, a wonderfully diverse, educationally fortified populace. I mean, there are people driving cabs who have advanced degrees. Right, right. They yeah. want to stay. Yeah. Want there, stay there is a middle to the bell curve. It's not an upside-down bell curve of wealth like it is in the Bay Area, so... Yeah. Speaking yeah. of the, the wealth in that aspect, um, I uh, spent a lot of my time looking at financials of you know, the cybersecurity market and heard a good, interesting report today, which kind of highlighted one of the, the theories I've always had and expounded that uh, how different the view of cybersecurity is from the investor side versus the buyer side. Mm-hmm. It's often, often that distinction gets missed and some bad decisions are made or some bad deductions are made uh, based on that. So on the way, you know, uh, uh, this the, the view being so, you know, quarter by quarter and I can exit out my money, of course, if I'm mm-hmm. going to invest in a cybersecurity company, I can, I can exit on a few moments notice. Whereas if I'm buying equipment or buying into a company's uh, roadmap, that is a minimum of a, of a three to five year investment, probably closer to six or seven based on most estimates I've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I used to track that when I ran the firewall market. It was, you know, I tracked that and it was, I would always warn buyers, Hey, look, you know, this is not the same as buying stock. This is. You know, you're buying into this company for this many years. So, and they would say, oh, but look, they're more, you know, their, their shares have gone up consistently. This is a strong company. Don't look at that. <laughs> you know, company viability is, yes, it's a factor, but you cannot base that off a stock chart. That is a, an assessment that, yes, you can maybe base that in based on their, you know, financial health, but that's more of a financial reporting. What, what, what data you can get from the full data, not just their, their stock price and the like. So don't be, don't be fooled by that. So yeah, companies do some very, very dumb things to increase their stock price and they can, you know, run some tricks to boost revenue. And one of the, um, one of the classic maneuvers that I recall from uh, my time in that world was you set up a, uh, an overseas distribution network, right? So you sell through agents and stations, And then at some point you acquire these formerly, you know, allegedly independent groups. And so now your distribution network is captive, which means instead of paying commission, you record the, the entire transaction as revenue, and then you can do what you can with, with expenses. I, I, it reminds me of that great quote from Larry Ellison, revenue is a fact, profit is an opinion. Yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah, and, and this is, again, you know, you want the companies to be successful. However, it being a successfully, a financially successful company to investors is very different than running in, in having product that you would buy into. Very, very true. And I, I used to take a lot of calls from the, you know, Gardner from the Gardner Invest clients, and it was just, it was so 
different of a discussion that would be had. So if I'm on with an end user saying, okay, we're looking at they buying this, you know, this cloud security technology. And then I get a call on the exact same topic, the exact same technology from an investor client. And they're asking questions about it. And it was just such a different, it was really intellectually uh, stimulating to make that pivot all the time. Mm. But I could see how people could not make that pivot and bring a bad deduction in one direction or the other. Sure. Well, the recent business with um, some of the um, newer firms in cybersecurity, you know, seeing record growth and also having to lay people off. Right. How can those two things happen at the same time? You know, the stock price is up. Why, why can't they, um, you know, fulfill the commitment of the people they've hired? Well, the answer is, uh, stock price is somebody else's future expectation of the worth. Doesn't say anything about cash on hand. Doesn't right. Say anything or, about yeah. Or next quarter, there may be some cycle going on that does something. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite remarkable. The differences there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, uh, it was constructing magic quadrants. It was often I get criticized by very large successful vendors because I didn't have them in the leaders quadrant. See, we should be a leader. We, we, we sell like, you know, billions of dollars every year in this. How can you not have us as a leader? I said, well, that's what the challenger quadrant is for selling lots of stuff. If you're always late to market and you're not the leader in the market, you're a, a successful follower. That's a different thing. Yep. And there's a whole segment of the market who's interested in not being bleeding edge, buying good price on trusted technology. That's fine. That's challenger. Right. But, oh, my gosh, I used to uh, get uh, beaten about the head and neck all the time. But for, for me, it was a very simple formula, and I stuck to that. It would have been very easy to buckle, yep. move the dot over, nobody yells. But too bad. That's that's not what the leader quarter was for, in my view. Exactly. I know that's changed now in many analyst opinions, or they just don't want the fight. But that's that's a good piece of data. It's very different analysis based on that. Yes, absolutely right. Yeah, that, I, I was having that conversation with uh, with a colleague just a few days ago. Is that in my day, and this was after Mike Brody had introduced the concept of the magic quadrant. Uh, I joined Gartner in 1990, and he had uh, put that thing out. I think two years earlier. The idea was, if you're buying a piece of technology, you worry about two things: the long term viability of the company, and that's the vertical axis of the deck, and the other is does this product actually solve the root cause of the problem that I'm facing? And that's the horizontal axis. And so if you can do both, if you are viable as a company over the long term and your solutions really do, you know, hit the nail on the head, then you belong in the leader's quadrant. But the typical motion is, you know, although you wouldn't be tracked through a company's lifestyle, it's a snapshot of times you start in the lower left. We don't know how you are as a business. The technology is improving yet. And then you come out with something technologically fabulous and that moves you to the right. And then the next, that's innovator. And then the next thing that happens is now that you've got some sales, you've got to be better at being a business. And that's where you get into forecasting and cash management and all that. And that moves you diagonally to the upper left, where now you're a challenger. If you can do that fourth step, which is to recover whatever it was that led you to make that wonderful innovation, now you can get top right. I, I assume there's a similar trajectory with regard to uh, a Forrester wave, although... Uh, not sure that the uh, dimensionality is uh, is the same, uh, but that's you know that's that's the thing because a person buying a piece of technology wants to know will it last as long as I need it? Will the company be around as long as I want? Is it going to solve my problem? If I'm buying tomatoes, I know I'm going to use them in the next few days. So the long term viability of the purveyor means absolutely nothing to me unless I want to you know sign a long term contract for tomatoes every Thursday for the next five years. 
then I have to take a look at the store and their supply chain and all that. But if it's a one shot, then I'll just, you know, get it and I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting to look also at the maturity of tech and what you need as well. There's always, that was always a tough decision, uh, discussion I would have with buyers is there. And they did the magic water buying only, of course. Oh, we want to buy leaders only. No, don't do that. There's, you know, let's talk about your situation first. Uh, right. And it was often the, the, the suspicion, I think, that I was just trying to play the field and give everybody an even shop. And that's not, not the case at all. There's, I don't need a race car to take the kids to school. Right. So uh, why should I have the highest performing automobile with the best horsepower? And they're like, no, it's minivan time. Let's talk about, you know, minivans. You're a shoe manufacturer from Penunkin, Ohio, and you don't have the, the staff to manage this, but your outsourcer does had the ability to manage this other company's equipment. So let's just do that. Mm-hmm. I recall one conversation I had with a, a, a group within the military in the U.S. And they contacted me and said, we've decided we don't want to be a um, B-type customer. The, the uh, IBM, uh, the Gartner model was, you know, type A was leading edge, sometimes bleeding edge. Type B was the big middle. Type C was trailing edge. And they perceived themselves as being a type C and they wanted to become a type A. And so they wanted to know which vendors should they replace to go from buying <laughs> C level to buying A level. <laughs> no, 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 no. You don't understand. When you buy, buy people who are at the leading edge, you need to have the support staff to do that. It's such as signing a contract with a different firm. The leading edge organizations will do things like cut deals where in exchange for revenue, you agree to become a reference. Is that something this branch of the service would ever do? Well, no. So, well, then you wouldn't want to do business with those guys. Also, not infrequently, vendors that are on leading edge will go out of business or be acquired. Would you be able to take over support for a leading edge product, which no longer has a support staff? They will know. So you don't want to do business with those. Right. And compliance stuff and standards they may achieve or certifications that some vendors would just turn their nose up and say, not doing it. It's too expensive and silly. So yeah. Like common criteria used to be back when people did common criteria. Yeah. Yeah. And the hardest lesson I learned was that people would take a photograph of the one slide in the deck that had the magic quadrant and then call their procurement office and say, it's a go on product XYZ. And I would, before I'd show the magic quadrant slide, I'd always say, now I, I want you to understand how we come up with this, not because I want to brag about the methodology, but because when I drew up this chart, I did not have you personally in mind. So rather than show you the result of my research, I want to show you how I got here so you can replicate the process and come up with your own magic quadrant based on your current circumstances and needs. I was like, huh, what? You want me to build it? Yeah. It's almost like I'd rather give them an Ikea magic quadrant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was also... uh... That was one of the goals. I always uh, wish they would evolve it more to two things. And one is that it wouldn't be a once a year kind of thing. It would be dynamic all the time. I put a pitch in for that, went off into the darkness and was ignored because I actually worked on magic quadrants. Therefore, my opinion was not valid. So yeah. dynamically day by day. But the other one was to have a, you know, this choose your own adventure where you can say, here's the criteria that I have for what's important and weighted a little differently. And I understand yeah. they've done some of that, but that's, that's, there's just still too many factors. I think that's still a human decision about when you're deciding vendors and that there's still so many factors about the rest of your tech that I don't think there's a tool to uh, successfully input that to reflect it well. Yeah. They did um, become somewhat more transparent by saying what the criteria were and what weight they gave to each criteria. The difficulty with that approach is, you know, if you have 15 criteria, and they're all weighted, you know, within an order of magnitude of each other, then none of them matter, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Going from a zero to 100%, 
on something that's within an order of magnitude of everything else isn't going to change the overall answer that much. So you really need to get the number of criteria down fairly low and then defend it. In, in fact, this is interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody recently about a, a very obscure piece of uh, philosophy of history. There was a fellow named um, Carl Hempel. I think he was at Princeton. Uh, and there was a fellow named um, Jake Glenn wrote a, uh, an essay about the possibility of historical laws. Hempel had said that the study of history is, in fact, a science. We're going to try to discover historical laws. And what J. Glenn Gray did was say, no, there are no historical laws because either they'll be so broad as to be meaningless or so specific as to be entirely applicable to just one case. What were the conditions that led to the French Revolution? Can we therefore extract from that and compare with the Bolshevik Revolution and the American Revolution and the um, uh, Cromwellian interregnum in uh, England and then say, you know, here are the rules by which revolutions happen. Well, the answer is no, you can't <laughs> because it, it doesn't work that way. There are so many factors in play and so much is, is contingent. So the same thing with trying to assess uh, vendors on too many dimensions. You have a couple of broad questions. And then you have to decide on your circumstances where where they fall. So, yeah. Here's a great uh, change, for example, that in this sort of, you know, narrow view of, of what to buy is the you know, something I've been on the hobby horse lately is, of course, platforms where if you have other elements from a vendor and those pieces will work better together, not just from an invoice perspective, but they actually will interoperate, give you better security telemetry mm -hmm. working together. That's a huge compelling factor versus I'm going to buy the best widget and have it not talk to anything. Right. Versus right. having a good widget, let's say, or even one that's close to the best, but it's going to talk to other stuff. Well, it's a slam dunk then. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if these vendors are talking to each other or I can get some telemetry that's very tightly aligned with how my soft does business. Yeah. And that's a big factor. So, yeah. Well, yeah. In fact, I remember that could, um, that could swing the whole deal. Yeah. Exactly. And, and then there's the point where you say there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns. There was a right. interesting market in the mainframe in the nineties. Uh, uh, that kind of evaporated and it was for tools to allow you to do more precise capacity planning. If you don't plan your capacity properly, then what happens is you're in the third year of a five-year contract and you've got a coterminous lease on a, a body of equipment and you've got to upgrade and you're paying the price that was set, you know, looking like a really good deal three years ago. And you could be paying that for two more years, but you're paying over the market for that. Oh yeah. It's a terrible curve, terrible curve too. Once it starts accelerating. Yeah. Right. It's a very, it's a, that's why disaster recovery vendors, you know, make money hand over fist. Well, you can buy capacity planning tools that give you three decimal precision on what your capacity will be, assuming of course that, <laughs> that your measurements are, are any good at all. But the cost of these tools is so high. And with the cost of equipment dropping so fast, it simply comes to a point where, you know, by the time we turned into the new millennium, there really wasn't much of a savings. In fact, it, it almost became pointless to even try to do much capacity planning beyond back of the envelope calculations that that was enough. Right, right. And paying under a hundred grand a month for a tool that gives you that much precision when, you know, meh, you know, if you buy it now or you buy it a year later, you're probably going to save money buying it a year later well, and more money than you'd spend on the tool. Yeah. And that difference is also interesting in security for like IT service management. They collect sort of an inventory of all the stuff we have, do this asset inventory. And it doesn't have to be exact. In fact, they don't want to spend too much time being exact. Good enough is, is good enough for that. 
Right. If there's 11 versus 12 laptops you have, nope, it's not the end of the world. But from a security perspective, if there's a laptop out there that's not accounted for, that's connected to us, and we don't know the security posture of it, that is very significant. Yep. So that precision required is so different. Uh, and that's why, you know, the external attack surface management, the connections we have to the internet or the, you know, cyber, uh, you know, attack surface management ones, cyber asset attack surface management ones are so important as well. We they, you know, need to know how many are there, like how many bolts there are is much more important in one uh, circumstance than another. I remember one um, audit that was done at an American embassy. I don't remember if it was in the Middle East or in South Asia, but they uh, discovered... <laughs> I think they're using Wireshark that they had one more laptop on the network than they knew about. <laughs> like, wait, wait a second. Who's that? <laughs> well, guess what, folks? Turned out there was a port that nobody knew was a, I mean, a, a, an Ethernet connection that nobody knew was there and there was something plugged into it. A massive leak. Everything that was being circulated in that building was being uh, surreptitiously uh, offloaded. Well, Bill, we have we, we went down a few rat holes in some strange areas. We went down the the magic quadrant, naval gazing one. I liked our I really liked our discussion about the you know the issues about state sponsored stuff and just what a knife edge it is. So, uh, yeah, you know, thanks for thanks for this discussion today. This was fascinating. It was not the direction I thought it would go, but it was great. And I hope our listeners found uh, value and entertainment in it. And we will see you in a week or so. Excellent. And thank you again to the people who listen to us. You are very important to us. So we, we do this as much for ourselves as for you, but uh, we really appreciate you tuning in. So uh, spread the word as well. If you have friends who would enjoy us, please tell us about the podcast. Uh, we're going to do it notwithstanding because we enjoy it so much, but I hope you're getting something out of it. And uh, don't, don't ever hesitate to contact us. Absolutely. You are the wind beneath our wings. <laughs> and you're our wings, too. <laughs> That's right. So this is signing off today is Greg Young. And signing off is Bill Malik. Be well. Stay safe. That brings us to the end of this edition of Real Cybersecurity. I'm Greg Young. And I'm Bill Malik. Thanks for your time and attention today and joining us on our journey. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Real Cybersecurity. And our email address is podcast at realcybersecurity.net. Thanks.